In the last five years, we've seen case after case of police killing unarmed civilians, even people running away. Usually, officers do not face charges. When they do, juries often acquit them. Does the law governing police use of force need to change? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your resident criminal justice guide and geek, explaining our criminal justice system and still ever so grateful for that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. It's a subject we've discussed here on Criminal Injustice many times. Civilian deaths at the hands of police officers. We know from data tracked since 2015 by The Guardian and The Washington Post that police kill about 1,000 people in the United States every year. We know that while most of them are armed, some of them are not. And we know that a disproportionate number of those killed are people of color. In the wake of these deaths, investigations take place. Most often, the investigators find the killings to be legally justified. Prosecutors reviewing the investigations find the law supports the officers involved, and they usually elect not to charge the police with any crime. In a smaller number of cases, prosecutors do charge the officers with crimes, usually some form of homicide. But as we've seen, more often than not, juries refuse to convict. They are instructed in the law by the judge in the case. Uh, They review the facts, and they simply do not think the police officer violated the law by killing the suspect because, as the law says, the evidence shows that a reasonable officer would have feared for his life. That's the legal standard. And so juries uh, and judges, when they hear the case without a jury, just don't convict. This has been true in cases even when the victim of the police shooting was fleeing, was actually running away. Recall the video from the case of Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina. In that bystander cell phone video, Scott can clearly be seen running full speed away from Officer Michael Slager, who sets himself into a shooter's stance and shoots Scott in the back as Scott runs. And Scott was killed. A jury refused to convict Slager, resulting in a mistrial. Slager then pled guilty to a lesser charge before the case could go to trial again. Now, here in Pittsburgh, we have had our own recent encounter with a similar case, and I talked about it here on Criminal Injustice. A police officer in the small town of East Pittsburgh stopped a car he believed to have been involved in a drive-by shooting shortly before. The officer got the driver out of the car. Before he could get the two passengers out, they ran. They ran away from the police officer. And as they ran, the officer fired, hitting 17-year-old Antoine Rose, who was unarmed, in the back. Again, the events were caught on video. The officer testified in the case that he felt fear for his life. And, like so many other cases, he was acquitted. Here is some audio following the verdict 
angry demonstrations took place outside the courthouse downtown here in Pittsburgh and across the city. This recording was posted by the Pittsburgh Trib Live website. Check it out. His name was Antoine Rose II. He was 17 years old and he was shot in the back three times. Three shots in the back. How do you justify that? Three shots in the back. How do you justify that? There is not just a lot of anger. There is also, for the first time, real movement toward changing the law that governs police use of force against civilians. That law, largely frozen since two Supreme Court cases in the 1980s, is now under re-examination with two proposals introduced in state legislatures. Uh, And that is something, frankly, that has simply not happened before. Our guest is one of the thinkers behind one of those proposals, and she's here to give us her perspective about what the law is and what it should be going forward. Cynthia Lee is the Charles Kennedy Poe Research Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. She teaches and writes about criminal law and procedure and has published a great number of journal articles and books on these very subjects. Her expertise ranges widely from the impact on criminal justice to so-called gay panic and trans panic defenses to the basic doctrine of self-defense as impacted by race. She's focused her recent research on the use of force by police officers in confrontations with civilians, and that has brought her into the recent public debates about changing use of force law. Her article in the Illinois Law Review, Reforming the Law on Police Use of Deadly Force, De-Escalation, Pre-Seizure Conduct, and Imperfect Self-Defense, has become the basis for newly proposed legislation in Maryland. We'll put a link to the article and that legislation up on our website. Professor Lee is also, I want to say, a good friend and a colleague of many years. Professor Cynthia Lee, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Hi, David. It's so good to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm very glad you're here. Let's start with a statement of what the law is right now on police use of deadly force. As I said, a couple of key Supreme Court cases from the 80s, first Tennessee versus Garner, and then a little later, Graham versus Connor, they lay out the basic rules. So uh, why don't you start by telling us what those basic rules are? Certainly. Tennessee versus Garner was a Supreme Court case from the from 1985 in which the court held that it is not constitutionally reasonable to use deadly force to prevent the escape of a fleeing felon unless the officer has probable cause to believe that the suspect poses a threat of serious physical harm to the officer or others and a warning if feasible is given prior to using deadly force. So that's Tennessee versus Garner. The flee, there, there can be a fleeing felon, but the, the rule is you can't shoot every fleeing felon as they, go, as they run away just to keep them from running away, right? That's correct. The court in Tennessee versus Garner found that the old common law rule that permitted police to use any amount of force necessary, including deadly force to prevent the escape of a fleeing felon, was constitutionally unreasonable. Okay, so unreasonable, and of course there's the key term from the Fourth Amendment, it has to be reasonable, and the Fourth Amendment, as we've discussed here on other shows uh, on criminal injustice, uh, that's the governing standard for any seizure or use of force. Okay, so there's your basic rule about fleeing felons. How about Graham versus Connor? 
Graham versus Connor was decided four years after Tennessee versus Garner. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that all claims of excessive force by a law enforcement official during an arrest, a stop, or other seizure of the person must be analyzed under the Fourth Amendment's reasonableness standard, not under a substantive due process standard. And the court said that in determining whether an officer's use of force was reasonable, that requires a careful balancing of the individual's interests against the government's interests. So reasonable, again, there's our key term. And they talk in Graham versus Connor about the reasonable objective officer standard. What does that mean? Yes, that's right. In the, the Graham versus Connor court, made clear that in conducting this reasonableness balancing, lower courts should consider the totality of the circumstances from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene, recognizing that sometimes officers have to make quick decisions on the scene. Right. So they, there can be split-second decisions that have to be made. And no uh, no twenty twenty hindsight, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you have to see the incident through the eyes of the reasonable, objective police officer. So we put these two important cases together, and that's kind of the state of the law for the last several decades. So how do lower courts and judges uh, every day, how do they put this together? How's this been interpreted? So Tennessee versus Garner was widely understood as establishing two clear guidelines regarding when police can use deadly force to stop a fleeing felon. As we talked about earlier, first, deadly force should not be used by an officer unless the officer has probable cause to believe the suspect poses a threat of death or serious bodily injury to the officer or others. And second, the officer should, if feasible, give a warning prior to using deadly force. In contrast, Graham versus Connor muddied the waters by moving away from its embrace of clear guidelines for police use of force and replacing those two bright line rules from Tennessee versus Connor with a more muddy reasonableness standard. And the Graham court explicitly declined to set declined to set forth clear guidelines for police use of deadly force even acknowledging that reasonableness balancing was not capable of precise definition. So we've got a standard after the two cases that is really based, to to the extent we can do it, uh, that we can figure it out, it's based on this, this idea of reasonableness, which doesn't have a super clear definition. It's not self-defining, and the court doesn't even want to give us a clear definition, just as it must be reasonable, has to be seen through the eyes of the police officer on an objective basis, and no Monday morning quarterbacking. Does that sound about right? That That's exactly right. The The court said that the lower courts have to look at the facts and circumstances of each particular case. And what we have today is that lower courts today disagree over things such as whether, as part of the totality of the circumstances, juries can consider the so-called pre-seizure conduct of the officer, that is, what the officer did or didn't do prior to using deadly force that may have increased the risk of a deadly confrontation. They they also disagree over whether the jury can consider 
whether there were less deadly alternatives available to the officer but not used by the officer. So this is all left up to lower courts, and there's a lot of disagreement, uh, state by state, court by court, um, fertile ground for lots of different sorts of interpretations. So let's put it into a concrete context, a concrete case. I think uh, you're probably as familiar as anybody I know with the Stefan Clark incident uh, from Sacramento. I'm sure a lot of folks uh, listening are aware of what that case is. Police are called to a neighborhood. There's some car vandalism taking place. The police run to a backyard uh, where a suspect has, uh, they've been told the suspect is hiding, uh, and a tragic incident takes place. Why don't you pick it up from there uh, and tell us what the courts did with that, or what the prosecution, excuse me, did with that. Yes, um, Stefan Clark, this was a very sad case. An unarmed black man was shot and killed, as you said, in the backyard of his grandmother's home by two Sacramento police officers who had been called to investigate reports of someone breaking into cars. And according to the district attorney who decided not to file charges against the officers, the officers called for Clark to stop, but instead he fled. And right before he was shot, Clark turned towards the officers with his arms extended in what the officers perceived to be a shooting stance. One officer saw a bright flash of light, which he thought was the muzzle of a gun, and he said, gun, the officers fired at Clark. I've seen reports that say they fired 20 times, hitting him seven or eight times and killing him. And it turned out that Clark was unarmed. Uh, He was found with a cell phone. Uh, And the light, the bright flash of light that the officer saw turned out to be a light from his cell phone. So the prosecutor comes out and she says she's not going to prosecute. uh, And she says it's because of the officer's beliefs about the presence of the gun. That's correct. So we've got this law and it's been governing for a long time. It's less than fully clear. uh, And the Supreme Court maybe hasn't done us any favors. Uh, And uh, in the wake of the decision not to charge the police officers with with homicide crimes after Stephon Clark's death, uh, the public really seems outraged and they want something done. And in light of that, uh, this may have been on the on the way anyway, but in light of that, a bill is introduced in California uh, to address this very topic. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, Assembly Bill 931, there's actually two bills before the California legislature. One is Assembly Bill 931, which was introduced by Assemblymember Shirley Weber from San Diego and others. And that would change the use of force statute to require officers to be correct. In California, if this law were passed, the use of deadly force by an officer would be justified only if actually necessary. Actually necessary. That is really important, isn't it? Yes. Yes, because what this bill would do would be to say that if the officer was mistaken about the need to use force, even if 
the officer was reasonably mistaken, his or her use of force would not be justified. Right. And this is a key difference, because if we go back to that constitutional law we were talking about, one of the things that we do need to, to stress is that the, uh, the standard is reasonably objective officer, and a reasonable officer can be mistaken. So an officer under that constitutional law doesn't have to be correct, just reasonable. And this California statute would change that, sounds like. Yes, yes. And and I mentioned there's another bill in California currently under consideration, and that was introduced by Senator Caballero. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, uh-huh. but Senate Bill 230 would simply require law enforcement agencies in California to maintain guidelines on the use of force utilizing de-escalation techniques and other alternatives to force when feasible and would require each agency to make their use of force guidelines available to the public. So law enforcement has lined up against Assembly Bill 931, the, the one that actually would necessary the bill, yeah. The actually necessary bill in favor of the Senate Bill 230, which would simply require agencies to maintain guidelines on the use of force. But having guidelines, internal police guidelines, is a lot different from having something in the law. How is it different? Well, internal police guidelines don't have the force of law. So if a law enforcement officer violates an internal police guideline, that won't help a family in court arguing excessive force by the police officer. It won't help a prosecutor trying to prosecute an officer for homicide because of the use of force. It's it's um, uh, It would simply be a violation of internal policy. Whereas if the law establishes a standard like police officers should de-escalate. That's something that can be taken into account by a jury. So those two things are much different. And so because the, uh, the let's just, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but let's say the weaker bill, the you-must-have-standards bill, uh, doesn't require any change in the law. Uh, advocates for use of force change didn't like that, but people on the other side... Uh, thought the actually necessary bill was far too strong, and therefore they were kind of at an impasse. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So uh, as a way of cutting through this, uh, we've got a different approach from the state of Maryland, uh, and that, I understand, came out of some of your own work. Yes, yes, indeed. This year... Delegate Alonzo Washington from Maryland introduced House Bill 1121, which would provide new standards on the use of force, because currently Maryland has no use of force statute on the books. Wow, no statute at all. And I don't suppose that uh, that, that kind of vacuum is a good thing. Yes, yes. Most states have use of force statutes on the books, and most 
state use of force statutes focus solely on whether the officer's belief in the need to use deadly force was reasonable. Some states just require an honest belief. If the if a police officer honestly believed that the use of deadly force was reasonable, that will be sufficient to make it justified. But most states require a reasonable belief. Uh, Maryland has no law, and so HB 1121 would fill that void. And what's different about Maryland's the, the HB 1121 is that instead of just focusing the jury's attention on whether the officer's beliefs were reasonable, it would require a finding that the officer's beliefs and actions were reasonable. So beliefs and actions. That is different, isn't it? It is. It is. Now, in most use of force cases, even though there's no explicit attention to the reasonableness of the officer's actions, there's an implicit, it's implicit that the jury is considering whether the actions were reasonable, but it's not explicit. So when the jury is given an instruction that they just need to find that the officer's beliefs were reasonable, the problem is, is it becomes a focus on whether the officer's fear of the suspect was reasonable. And if the officer cl- says, I thought he had a gun, or I, I, I feared that he was going to kill me, the, the jury is likely to say, well, the, the officer was there uh, uh, at the time we weren't there, and uh, the officer says he thought he saw a gun. That's a reasonable fear. If we shift the focus or add uh, add an inquiry into whether the officer's beliefs, beliefs and actions were reasonable, that allows the jury to focus on necessity and proportionality, which is already part of the inquiry, but gets lost when the focus is solely on the reasonableness of the officer's beliefs. So... This way, the the jury can think about, well, what was the conduct of the officer? Was that reasonable? Was was it reasonably necessary in light of what was going on? Did did the uh, did the officer need to shoot the the person because the person posed a threat of death or serious bodily injury? And and what could the officer have done? differently that uh, might have made it not necessary. Let's take a quick break here. You're listening to Criminal Injustice. We're with Professor Cynthia Lee of the George Washington University Law School. We're talking about change in police use of force standards. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Nancy and I'm calling from Connecticut. This is Trisha calling from Baltimore. Eric from Kingston, New York. Calling from D.C. From Orange, Virginia. Sunny Dayton, Ohio. Calling from Long Island. St. Paul, Minnesota. Los Angeles, California. Kahului, Hawaii. Christchurch, New Zealand. Sacramento. Philadelphia. Iowa City, Iowa. I was calling to ask you a question. question for you. I had a question about Miranda. I have a question about something I heard on the news. I've been wondering. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. I was wondering and I was just curious. I am curious. The question I have for you is. What I want to know I is. I want to know. I'd love to hear more about. I would like for you to please explain. I'm hoping you can help me uh, understand. What are the laws about that? But I'd ask the expert. Got a question? Better call Dave. 
Call 412-407-3389 and ask Dave. That's 412-407-3389. Hi, everyone. David Harris with you here with Criminal Injustice. And our guest is Professor Cynthia Lee of the George Washington University Law School. She's been working on police use of force standards. She has an incredibly important article in the Illinois Law Review that we've linked to on our website. And she's been part of the team helping members of the Maryland legislature put together a bill for consideration. Uh, Professor Lee, before the break, we were talking about how another approach might work, particularly HB 1121 in the state of Maryland. And we're talking about the difference between simply looking at beliefs and the fear a, a, a police officer might have and thinking about their actions. And it really does strike me how important it is to put the concrete actions of the police officer into play in front of the jury so uh, they will really get a sense of what was going on with that officer at the time. It's not just a matter of what the officer believed, but what the officer did. And I think your work pointing toward this uh, uh, helped the, the, the legislators who are involved in the effort in Maryland really pull together a statute that will work along these lines. So what kind of concrete things would the statute point jurors to look at when it comes to the use of deadly force? So HB 1121 specifies that a trier of fact shall consider three factors as part of the totality of the circumstances when assessing whether the police officer's beliefs and actions were reasonable. And when we say, let me just interrupt here and say trier of fact, we mean a judge or more likely a jury. Go ahead. That's correct. That's correct. And this list of three things is not an exclusive list. The jury can consider any other factor they think is relevant, but this list provides them with some guidance where most statutes do not provide any guidance at all. So the first factor is whether the injured or deceased person that is usually uh, labeled, labeled the suspect, possessed or appeared to possess a deadly weapon or an object that could be used as a deadly weapon and refused to comply with a police officer's order to drop it. The second factor is whether the police officer engaged in de-escalation measures, such as taking cover or waiting for backup or trying to talk with or calm the suspect or the deceased or injured person, or whether the officer used less lethal types of force prior to the use of deadly force, if such measures were feasible. And the third factor is whether any conduct by the police officer increased the risk of a confrontation, of a deadly confrontation. Okay, so let's take all three of those. Let's take them one at a time. Uh, whether the person appeared to possess or did possess a deadly weapon and refused to comply with the officer's order to drop it. Why is that so important? Why focus the jury on that? Well, the first factor really seems obviously relevant. If, if the person appeared to be in possession of a gun or some other deadly weapon 
and the officer said, drop it, and the person didn't, that would support a finding that the police officer's actions were reasonable because especially if a person has a gun, there's a a concept called action-reaction. And basically it means that someone with a gun if an officer sees someone with a gun and they wait until the person actually points it at the officer and is about ready to pull the trigger, it will be too late for the officer to react. The officer has to react before the person actually brings the gun up in a position where the person can fire um, because of the the lag in perception between perception and action. Uh, so, so of course, if a person has a gun or it, it looks like the person has a gun and the officer says drop it and the person f- refuses to drop it, that would support a finding that the officer's conduct is reasonable. And that's so, um, so important. It, you know, we want to we want to make sure uh, in a situation like this that, you know, we're not we're not trying to judge the officer in hindsight. We are trying to see how reasonably the officer was and the combination of looking at actions and beliefs is what will make that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, if a person is refusing to comply with an officer's orders, and if the person has an object that the the officer thinks is a gun, but it turns out not to be a gun, and the officer says, drop it, and the, and the person drops it, and then the officer shoots, that not would reasonable. suggest yeah. exactly that yeah. the officer's actions were not reasonable. But it gives the, it gives both parties a chance to avoid an unnecessary death. Absolutely. If possible. Yeah. So your second factor, engaging in de-escalation, taking cover, waiting for backup, trying to calm the suspect. This also strikes me as quite important because what you're doing here is you want the jury to consider whether these things uh, were tried short of deadly force. Exactly, exactly. And by requiring the jury to consider whether the officer engaged in de-escalation measures, the bill is really aimed at preventing unnecessary death deaths. Many police chiefs actually recognize that de-escalation training is an important way to reduce the number of bad shootings. Absolutely. Which is why why an increasing number of police departments are including de-escalation in their internal police regulations. Las Vegas is, is one police department that used to be known as one of the deadliest jurisdictions for police shootings. Mm -hmm. And after the Department of Justice looked at the police department's actions, they they came up with an agreement where they they put in de-escalation training into their internal police regulations, and the number of police shootings went down, the number of complaints against police went down. But as I mentioned earlier this hour, having de-escalation in an internal police regulation not necessarily is not enough. The same. Yeah. It's not the same as having it in the log because a violation of an internal police regulation can't be used against an officer in a court of law. Absolutely. So de-esca- having de-escalation 
as part of the law, is more likely to encourage the desired behavior. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a really important point. This, a statute like this, um, will cause police departments to modify their expectations, policy, and training. And if we want a different kind of policing, if we want an emphasis on actions short of deadly force more often than we are seeing them now, this is just the kind of statutory intervention, this is just the kind of new law that might actually do that. Um, if you look, and, and as I look at your, your third uh, factor, whether any conduct by the police officer increased the risk of a confrontation resulting in deadly force. What do you mean by that? And in what circumstances would uh, officer conduct increase uh, the risk? So one example that's easy for people to grasp is, let's say there's a high-speed chase and an officer who's uh, further down the line. So there's a, a police officers are following a car uh, high-speed chase, and an officer in, in, uh, up ahead in the road uh, decides to jump in front of the, the moving vehicle and shoots the driver, and then claims, well, I had to shoot the driver because otherwise he would have mowed me down. Would I, my life was at risk. Well, the officer's, the officer's action or conduct of jumping in front of the moving vehicle, that put him at risk. He didn't have to jump in front of the moving vehicle. He he wouldn't have been, uh, there wouldn't have been a threat of death or serious bodily injury to the officer if he hadn't put himself in harm's way by jumping in front of the moving vehicle. So that's an example of pre, what what is known in criminal procedure circles as pre-seizure conduct that increased the risk of a deadly confrontation. Pre-seizure meaning before the moment of the use of deadly force, um, because using deadly force in the Fourth Amendment context constitutes a seizure of the person. So pre-seizure conduct is anything prior to the moment of deadly force. Absolutely. So let's take, uh, let's say that the bill gets enacted um, and in uh, Maryland, the uh, an, another shooting occurs. And let's say the 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 uh, the circumstances are exactly as we explained with Stefan Clark, uh, the shooting in the backyard of the grandmother's house. Would a statute like the Maryland HB one one two one what would ha- what would have been different? So I haven't reviewed the evidence that the DA's office, the Sacramento DA's office had before it. So I can't speak specifically to, uh, you know, what would have happened because I don't I don't have all the evidence in front of me. But we and we're speaking hypothetically anyway. Yes. But some of the questions that we would want to ask are, did the officers engage in any de-escalation measures? Um, could they have taken cover? And, and again, it's if feasible. Could they have taken cover? Could they have waited for backup? Could they have tried to talk with the suspect before shooting? I, I know that there was, uh, uh, they did, apparently, what I've heard is they did ask him to raise his hands. Uh, and and so there was that. Um, one other thing about the statute that I think is a positive mm-hmm. is that it enables an officer who does engage in de-escalation measures 
to bring that forth. If if the officer does engage in de-escalation measures and those don't work and the officer ends up using deadly force and it results in a shooting of someone who turns out to have not been a deadly threat, the officer can bring that up as a defense. Right. It counts in, in his favor. It counts in his favor. Um, that I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that an officer should always be exonerated if they do engage in de-escalation measures, but it certainly is a relevant factor. And the jury gets to decide ultimately whether that engage and would probably, I would say, would probably say the officer who does engage in de-escalation measures has acted reasonably. Now, you've talked about both the California and the Maryland bills. In your mind, what makes the Maryland bill a better bill than what's been proposed in California? I think the Maryland bill is better than the California bill because in requiring police officers to be right, in requiring them to be correct, the California bill sets an almost impossible standard to meet. The Maryland bill recognizes that police officers are fallible human beings, like all of us. And if one makes a mistake, if it is a reasonable mistake, one shouldn't be held criminally liable for it. The the Maryland bill recognizes that police officers can make mistakes, and it it won't hold them liable if they make a reasonable mistake. Do you think that changing the law, whether it's through HB 1121 or something else, will actually change the decisions that juries make? Well, David, changing the law might not have any effect on what judges and jurors do in police use of force cases. But nonetheless, I think changing the law on police use of deadly force is critically important because it's likely to encourage police officers on the ground to act with more care before using deadly force. The instinct to defend oneself will always be present in any situation where an officer is contemplating the use of deadly force. And reforming the law in a way that encourages officers to de-escalate, if feasible, can provide a really useful counter to that self-preservation instinct. You told me in a conversation before we were recording this that the uh, HB 1121 uh, has expired for this session. Uh, It was not enacted before the session of the Maryland legislature ended. Uh, Do you expect it's going to be reintroduced next time from what you know? Yes. uh, The Delegate Washington's legislative aide tells me that Delegate Washington plans to reintroduce it next session. And do you see other measures out on the horizon, other states taking a look either at your proposal, your approach, or other ones that that you think are noteworthy? I'm not aware of others other than the proposals in California and the one that was just before the Maryland legislature. But I, I do know that this is something that the people, that many people are interested. This is a subject that concerns many communities, particularly communities of color. And I think legislators are listening. 
Our guest has been Cynthia Lee. She is the Charles Kennedy Poe Research Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School, and she's the author of Reforming the Law on Police Use of Deadly Force, De-Escalation, Pre-Seizure Conduct, and Imperfect Self-Defense in the University of Illinois Law Review. We're putting that up on our website. Thanks so much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from just about every news media outlet in my home state of Pennsylvania is an update on one of our most prominent lawyers to behave badly and publicly, former Pennsylvania Attorney General Kathleen Kane. Former Attorney General Kane was an obscure former assistant district attorney until 2012 when, out of nowhere, she first won the primary and then the general election for state attorney general. She was the first woman and the first Democrat ever to win the office. It's only been an elected post since 1980. She was a rising star. Maybe, people whispered, the next governor. Well, it did not work out that way. Shortly after coming into office, Kane announced that she would drop a prosecution of several prominent politicians in Philadelphia charged with corruption. This didn't sit well with a couple of top people in Kane's office who had built the case, and leaks to the news media followed leaks Kane perceived as damaging to her. It wasn't long before someone else did some leaking that looked bad for the original leakers, except this time the information leaked came from grand jury proceedings. Now, we've talked about grand juries here a couple of times, and there's one thing to remember about grand jury information. It's secret. On the federal level and here in Pennsylvania, on the state level, no one is permitted to share any information from grand jury proceedings. Not the prosecutor, not anybody. The only exception in the federal system is that a witness can talk about what he or she told the grand jury or was asked. But that's it. Just the witness. Certainly, no prosecutor can talk about what happened in the grand jury rooms. Well, that counter-leak out of the grand jury... It went to the Philadelphia media and it came, wait for it, from Attorney General Kane herself. And then when questioned about it, under oath, she denied it. It became a political storm par excellence involving charges, countercharges, even more leaks, and the taking down of a number of high state officials, including two state Supreme Court justices. In the end, Attorney General Kane was tried and found guilty in 2016 on nine counts, including the leaks and the perjury. After her appeals failed, she went to jail in November of 2018, where she is now serving a 10 to 23 month sentence. Well, here's the update. The Pennsylvania State Bar Authorities have disbarred Attorney General Kane. Excuse me, former Attorney General. She had been suspended from practice, actually going back to 2015 before her trial and guilty verdict. In March of 2019, she submitted her resignation from the bar and her disbarment 
now makes that final. We've heard a lot here about lawyers behaving badly who are not punished at all, or not punished enough, or even reinstated after behaving very badly, such as former Congressman Carol Hubbard of Kentucky, disbarred after staging a break-in at his own district office to destroy evidence of his own crimes, and then several years later, reinstated to practice again by the Kentucky Supreme Court, and then Just recently, uh, they had to suspend him from practice for 60 days. This disbarment of our former attorney general, it fits the crime. And for all of us in the profession, we should all hope it sticks for good. That is Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that closes another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't done that already, and share us all over social media. Leave reviews on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast app. That really does help people to find us. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Why don't you call in? You can ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that. Again, 412 407 3389. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris. Back next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com.